0: Whether it's A River Runs Through It, or The Oxbow Incident, The Last Best Place, or Legends of the Fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland.
1: And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing. And so many memorable books.
0: So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. We're going to talk about two books this episode. The contemporary author we're going to discuss is Earl Craig, whose new book of poetry just came out. It's called Woods
1: and Clouds Interchangeable. And the other author we're going to look at is the deceased poet Ed Leahy, his collection of poetry that Mark Gibbons rescued just before he died, which Drumlumman put out last year called Moving On. One of the things that's pretty interesting about these two guys is that they're
0: both basically working-class poets.
1: Yeah, I think that is an interesting point of overlap between the two. Earl is a farrier. He shoes horses for a living. Yeah. And, and Ed Leahy, he did a lot of different things, but most of it manual labor in and around the mines in Butte and Corbin, Montana.
0: I guess one difference between them would be that um, Earl kind of came to the uh, manual labor uh, by choice. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's got a master's in poetry and he comes from back east from Ohio. And Ed, it almost seems like that was that was all he really had as, as an
1: option, right? No. Um, actually, they're both similar in that respect also. Oh, Ed, really? Okay. Ed was also a scholar. I mean, he went to U of M, and um, Roger Dunsmore said he had a pretty uh, exclusive scholarship to a college back east. I can't remember off the top of my head where, but, um, you know, clearly well-educated and also, I think, did some teaching. Okay. Um, but, you know... The ethos of his poetry is definitely working class. Mm. Um, so maybe they're a little divergent in that respect. You know, Earl right. is a little more cerebral. Yeah, he is. But there's plenty in Ed Leahy that, you know, I think for a lot of those seventies Montana poets who we associate with the working class, like Richard Hugo, mm. mm-hmm. you know, Ed had a foot in both worlds. He was also really erudite and you know, there's these poems are full of allusions to Nietzsche and mm. and people, and then you know Earl is a horseshoer who talks about Catullus.
0: <laughs> I also love the fact that so Earl talked, and you'll hear it in his interview uh, a lot about how he really labors over his poems. They're not nearly as uh, spontaneous and sort of random as they seem, and uh, that was one of the most fascinating things about talking to him was finding out how much time he puts into it because it feels like they he does i mean they when you read them they just feel like there's um there's something going on that that's sort of incomprehensible that but you feel it
1: right i th- i think what you're getting at is they feel like they've been really carefully and methodically yeah. put together right even though there's also this really spontaneous sense of what did you call it randomness or yeah like uh Non-sequiturs, almost. He's open to accident and chance. Right.
0: So we're here talking to Earl Craig. Welcome, Earl. Hello. Good to have you. Yeah. Hi, Earl. Hello. (laughs) We're hanging out at Earl's house. This is nice.
2: You like it out here? <laughs> yeah. How so long have you lived out here? We uh, moved into this house in um, right around Thanksgiving of 2003. Okay. Yeah. Wow, well, you've been under a while. Though. Yeah. We bought the the ground in 01 and then had the place built in 2003 in the fall.
0: And you moved here from where?
2: Uh, well, we were living up the valley in Clyde Park and Wilsall area. Right. But where are you originally from? Oh, I I was raised in Dayton, Ohio. Oh wow. Yeah, and I came to the University of Montana in 1990 or 91 for undergraduate English. Oh, for undergraduate. Yeah. Okay. Did you do the graduate program there too? No, I uh, did a graduate, a three year MFA at um, UMass Amherst.
0: So talk to us about woods and
2: clouds interchangeable, Earl. All right anything in particular why that title um well the title uh, when i the title was came way you know late in the game after i had put together the whole book and the way i look at titles rather than picking a title of a poem that everybody is gonna go and say well that's the title poem mm. that must that's the that's what he feels is maybe one of the most important things in the book. I usually try to steer away from doing that. A lot of times I'll just find a line or a phrase, a couple of words in, a, in somewhere buried in the book that I feel is tonally appropriate. It mm. kind of sits like a cap on top of the book or an awning or something. Mm. So what I'll do is when it's time to reassess, what, when it's time to choose one, I'll just go back through the whole book. But this time specifically looking for something that jumps out that's interesting. And Woods and Clouds Interchangeable kind of rose to the surface just Mm -hmm. as a phrase that tonally I felt was good for the book. There were some jokier ones. The runner-up was Briskly Jerked Rugs. And that, I really liked that one as well. That was right there. And I talked to different friends and just thought about it. But I just felt like uh, Woods and Clouds Interchangeable was a little bit more yeah tonally right it fits your it fits yeah so Thanks. i'm curious about the, the theme
0: that's kind of a running theme in this collection the who was theme
1: mhm yeah when you read in helena you you were
2: working with that there kind of are three things going on in this book one of them is the the, the who was series and then that long poem at the back of the book which is in 20 pieces and and then the the rest of the book are what I would call the normal or standard poems that have titles Mm. and and basically while I while I was writing the poems over the last five years I wrote a couple of the who was poems they're just separate I thought I'd write as many as I could or wanted to and then at first I thought maybe it would be a uh, a chapbook Oh. then I thought no, maybe this is something. Maybe I'll write sixty or seventy of them. It'll be a totally its own book. Then I thought no, that, I, I think I'll uh, I'll have them in the book, but but in their own section. And then finally, I arrived at the current setup, and that is every fourth poem is one Whoa. of these one of these who was poems. Okay, I didn't notice that. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what is too much you know writing 60 of these would that become tedious for a reader or more importantly for me because oh, that oh. you know for sure i think writers we we feel we feel it when we when we wear something out or we get to a spot where that feels right and We're so fortunate. this book is kind of a combination of three different types of poem and then the the job was just to see how to make them fit together and to create kind of enough of a varied terrain Mm -hmm. for the reader. I do think about that a lot, like what what is, what is, uh, you know, too much.
1: But at the same time, there's a lot more going on there, I think, in each one of them than the first read would indicate.
0: Yeah. And you talked about that in your introduction to Ed's book. Um, right, it.
1: yeah, the same. I think that's another point of similarity is that they both really worked a lot on these each individual poem. And one of Ed Leahy's friends, Jack Waller, you know, described how he wrote poetry, and it was he would work on several at one time, and that just baffled Ed. Mm. And he was like, "I'm a one poem at a time kind of guy." <laughs> Um, yeah you know, and he went twenty years between books, mm. so he it was not for him about necessarily publishing them. right. And I would say also, this is a interesting comparison. Um, both of these poets are great readers, mm. like Ed Leahy was famous as a reader, mm. like he really felt poetry was to be declaimed. And every time I've heard uh, Earl read, and you'll hear him read in his interview also he's just a great reader
0: yeah so it it just occurred to me when you were talking about the 20 years between books for ed you know um one one huge difference between these guys and and we know earl well enough i think to say this is that ed was fairly tormented as a human being and earl seems like i mean he just seems like one of the most stable down-to-earth guys you'll ever meet i mean I, it's just hard to imagine
1: that he has much uh, turmoil going on in his life. I don't know. Hard to hard to know from the outside, but yeah, I think at least superficially, it's true. You know, yeah. Ed was a tortured soul and was a chaotic individual. His family would tell you that that there was a wake of chaos mm-hmm. trailing behind him. Um, whereas, I think you're right. Um, I think of Earl as more than a poet. Kind of, you know, this philosophical uh, gnome. Yeah, and he's has savant. just <laughs> this wonderful
0: enthusiasm for for life, and he, he's one of the most fun people I know to talk to about writing or the arts at all. I mean, he's he's uh and,
1: and, one of my
0: favorite people.
1: Yeah, and his enthusiasm is a great word. He, I mean, he shows enthusiasm for whatever he's talking about, whether mm-hmm. it's you know. Uh, Uh, horse, what do they call it? A horse hoof knife? What do they call it? Right.
0: Yeah. I can't remember what he called it.
1: You know, whether he's talking about insects or, you know, some coyote that went through the the yard. (laughs) You, You can see that in his poetry, too. Yeah. What about meter? Do you, did you incorporate any kind of constraint
2: with the meter or not in those. And typically I don't, the who was poems, they're all four syllable oh, really? lines. And so some of those awkward breaks, um, were, you know, mandated by the syllable count. And, um, I also wanted to do that because I, I found that doing that, you know, you know, like any form, you have your hands tied and it, and then you make choices that you might not have made. So I would, I would have a, a way I wanted to say something, but that one word was three syllables. And I and and so I would, you know, right. choose to find another word or rework oh. that though, a couple of lines so that it would finish w- within the, the syllable constraint. And then a lot, a lot of the a lot of lines in any poem are. I'm thinking a lot about how they sound, but I'm not typically um, writing and you know scanning lines and making right. sure right. they yeah. fit. But but typically when they do scan, you know they sound good. So a lot of them end up. Being kind of close—that's what I think is interesting when you're writing. Yeah, it's poems. like an instinct or yeah. something. Yeah, you you, ch- you make a change and oh, that sounds so much better. And then you quickly do a syllable count and look at the beats and it and wow, it's, it, it sometimes they end up being a line of iambic pentameter and you really didn't intend that, but you're just we're you we're used to uh, to hearing it. It does sound good. They exist for a reason. Hmm. Yeah
1: maybe following up on the meter question and i think this might get to some of that too when you when you mentioned word lists i didn't realize that was something you did i'm always curious about people who write poetry like when do you do it like do you carry a notebook around all the time or do you get up and write between five and eight in the morning or Mm -hmm. just whenever
2: like yeah i i do carry notebooks (laughs) but not all the time um when I'm traveling or I usually have something in the truck when I'm working, but, and I do not definitely do not have, and I wish that I did. I, 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 and maybe sometime in the future I will be able to do this, but I don't have a get up every day between these hours and no matter what make myself work. I just have never had that discipline. I still have a full-time job with, you know, an employee and lots of, curveballs and scheduling and so my summers are there's very little reading and writing that happen in the for me in the summer in the fall and winter it's kind of overlooked in there I, I'm trying to make up for that um, but I do also think that in the future I get it I understand how that could be really good to have this thing that you do more regularly if not very regularly I think that uh, sometimes I look at what I've been doing the last fifteen or twenty years as just a warm up for <laughs> a future writing life that I don't have yet. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I really do. I think about that. Like I'm practicing for when I, I'm not shooing horses and <laughs> there are other things that I want to do and I don't know, that's maybe I'm being uh well too I guess hopeful. <laughs> maybe
1: what Russell was trying to get at, or at least what I took out of what he was saying, is that well, it's true that a lot of the lines themselves seem non sequitur or random, they end up making sense. And then there's also this feeling of like real discipline, mm-hmm. and not just this book, but talkativeness too. Like mm-hmm. this is not something that some poet just sat down and wrote. Like there's a lot of, I don't know. I think a lot of people think of poetry as it just happens by magic. Yeah. No, there's a lot of thought that goes into it, yeah. obviously. And, and you can like, there's just discipline in this book.
0: And you can feel it. I mean, I I think that's what I I was struck by was that, you know, I didn't understand a lot of them, but it it wasn't like I felt like I needed to either. It was, they they conjured up a feeling and and where, you know, you you know when you're reading a
1: bad poem because you don't feel anything. I mean, it's just like... Or you don't get an image in your hand. Yeah, right.
0: So one of the things uh, about this book that was interesting, and he talks about it in the interview, is he had three sort of themes running through it. And one of them was he had a series of poems uh, that started with who was. And they're just sort of brief, like almost historical uh, reflections on certain people, most of them famous people. And um, I want to read one of them here. Because he talked about, uh, after we finished the interview, he talked to us a little bit about how, you know, he probably, it, it probably comes across that he's just making stuff up about these people, but this poem in particular is about Joan of Arc, and it talks about the executioner, uh, the the guy that was in charge of, of killing her, and somehow um, Earl found out in his research that this guy actually... Um, filed a complaint later after after the execution, um, suggesting that it was wrong, that it, that they shouldn't have executed her, which is pretty interesting. So I just want to read this. <clears throat> Who was Joan of Arc? A pious child, grave beyond her years, wore a plaid cloak, thick glasses. Her friends called her Joanie of Arc. History feared her. She said she heard voices. She said she saw lights, had a dachshund she named Kenny. She slept always fully dressed, her parents the retiring type. It's believed there were more than one of her. Unlike the rest of us, she just had one executioner. His name was Jeff Tharage. They say he paused, but this ain't about him. And the, the another thing I love about that, and he mentioned it too, was Thiraj is spelled the rage if you break it down like in English um
1: and that was his actual name,
0: yes, right, so and he didn't make that up
1: and I think the the point he was trying to get at was that there are elements in his poetry that you know clearly are things that are made up, but yeah, but
0: the dachshund probably
1: <laughs> what the poems kind of draw attention to is that you know truth is quite often stranger than fiction, right. and people will come up to him and say, is that true? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, yeah, that part actually is true. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So now I want to ask him, did she really have a dachshund named Kim? Yeah,
0: maybe, he, maybe she did.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that, since you brought it up, the whole Who Was series of poems uh, made me think of another poem in the collection, the Don Cheadle poem, which is not a Who Was poem, but you get the sense that he was trying to write who was Don Cheadle, and he ended up with a completely different poem that's sort of a meta-narrative about the process of writing the poem. So this is Don Cheadle poem. I've been working on my Don Cheadle poem for hours now, and nothing's happening. I am at home working on my Don Cheadle poem. My Don Cheadle poem seemed like a good idea earlier, but not so much now. Nothing interests me in my Don Cheadle poem. If I knew how to get my Don Cheadle poem off the ground, I would do that. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of funny and it's a little flip, but at the same time, once you've read all those who were, who was poems, you, you get the sense that, oh, here's one that didn't work out, <laughs> but he found something else that's <laughs> illuminating.
0: Right. the The struggle of trying to write something. So were there, what were the themes you would point out as far as the moving on Ed Leahy's collection?
1: That's a pretty interesting question because um, just a little background about this collection. Um, Ed Leahy spent the last few years of his life in a nursing home in Missoula and his good friend um, Mark Gibbons, when he finally died, the family asked Mark to go, you know, deal with the cleaning up the apartment. And, and Mark scrupulously saved every piece of paper he came across mm. and then went through them very carefully and made almost no editorial changes at all and then assembled them into a collection. You know, really important literary work, I think. Mark deserves a huge amount of credit for that. Yeah. But you would also think that finding a collection that wasn't curated by the author himself Might not have a focus or a Mm. coherent theme, and I think that's in the main true. Although a lot of these poems are about getting old, about moving on that's why we called it moving on, um, about you know major changes, a lot of philosophical ruminations on the nature of life itself. So I think there is it's a really interesting collection that clearly Ed wouldn't have put it together this way, Mm. but. I'm sure glad that Mark rescued these. I'll I'll read one called Moving. So this is not Moving On. There's another poem called Moving On. This one's just called Moving. Moving. Moving is a burdensome task. There are so many boxes to be filled and opened, stuff to be put away, carried to the garbage chute. Tina is a whiz. Without her, I would be lost. Moving is like dying. I am almost 70. My time is nearing. Thanatopolis means death in Greek. There is clarity in death, stuff for the garbage chute. A wedding just went by outside my window, horns honking, tin cans tied to the wedding car. Life is moving. We think we are going somewhere. Some believe in eternal life. I believe in the garbage chute. What to throw out, what to save. It costs money to move. It takes energy and effort. One has to identify things. Suicide is not the answer. I have lost a pair of trousers, which I need if I am to continue. I must go on. Life demands it of me. The cemetery can wait. Every man is a lighthouse waiting for the ship to come in. Tina will find my trousers, and I will put them on one leg at a time. Life is moving." It's actually kind of similar to a Earl Craig poem in ways. Just the cadence of it. They mm, Yeah, the cadence for sure. <clears throat> we should also mention that that um, Joan of Arc poem you read does adhere to his four-syllable oh, yeah. constraint that he imposed on that form. Mm-hmm.
0: So one thing that strikes me as different between them is, is uh, Ed's poems are way more grounded in reality. You know, <laughs> like this is... This is what he's doing. This is what he sees. This is what he's thinking about. Earls are so much more um, kind of in the realm of almost fantasy. Mental um, exercises, I guess you'd say.
1: Yeah, when you were saying that, the first thing I thought of is, it's not always like fantasy. It's just that he has this weird way of looking at reality. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that popped into my mind is the poem where he's talking to, he's like in a coffee shop. And the line is, a muffin passes me by. <laughs> and you can visualize that. Yeah. It's not like the muffin is walking, but right. instead of focusing on, you know, a woman walks by me carrying a muffin. Yeah. He just says the muffin passes right. me by. <laughs> yeah. Just a kind of a unique way of processing exactly, reality. Yeah.
0: Whereas Ed probably would have said something about the waitress or the
1: Well, Hugo for sure. Yeah, in that <laughs> Degrees of Grey poem where he talks mm. about the you know, the red hair of the barmaid. Right.
2: to those rugs at the end when i said they have they're not, initially they weren't allowed to have any type of if there was a a, a pony in the beginning he'd only get one line and the next <laughs> line you know i was always moving away from any type of content Cohesion, but the but the flip side is what was really important for every one of those lines and all all through that poem was tonal cohesion. So in many ways, writing those, I spent more time on each of those sections than I typically would. Well, oh, it was painful because there are a million things you can do. That then, right? You can anything goes. That's what the that's what it seems like. He's going to write a sentence. A sentence a sentence and just stack them up mm. and anything goes but that that's not it at all because sometimes i would have five sentences that had the word auburn in it or cushion and or mustard or you know mm. aggrieved i just would work off of word lists and so you have five or six sentences and and you you might have two or three for this other word and maybe just one for this third word but the whole idea is you're picking and trying to make this thing move forward tonally always hmm. and hmm. so it was I had I put those things through many drafts trying to tinker with them and sometimes I would leave one and come back you know a couple of weeks later or whenever and something would seem wrong somewhere in that second stanza and I would finally figure it out where that tripping spot was and remove that line and put something else in there hmm. and sometimes it would just click and immediately it would uh it would work and I would leave it alone then but but uh so when so yeah I, I try to make I think the secret of any poem is you want it to seem like it was knocked off mm-hmm. right the best poems don't seem like they were slaved over, and when they do, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. The Italians call that it sprezzatura. Sprezzatura.
1: It's like, it's really cool without having to work at it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I think what I love about your poems is that, I mean, I can absolutely see anyone who reads these poems is going to come away with a different message. I mean, there's no like agenda that I can see. You're, you're writing poems. You're not writing, like, <laughs> you're not trying to get across some kind of particular
2: message. Is that true? Or that's what it feels like to me anyway. Mm, you know, I would agree with that, yeah. I mean, I, there are some poems that I think do function more. Like it, it bothers me when people, if people, there are some responses to certain poems that i think are inappropriate and i'm not just oh. talking about my own oh. poems when you're in a let's say we're in a workshop and as as far as reading goes i don't believe that anything goes you know bob over there can have a response to yeats's second coming and it's wrong oh. i mean not you know what i'm saying it's a it's toy. not it's not true that any reading of of poems is, is as good as the as the next one, right? And so, but there are places. Back to these poems, um, most of them there is a, there is a lot of room for people to kind of have their own take on something. Mm-hmm. But but I also think that um, there are places where no, I, you have to stop. I come into it and
1: teach in literature classes yeah. all the time that students think you know you you can interpret a text pretty much any way and. You know, The Grapes of Wrath is not a story of alien abduction. Yeah. Like, you just can't give that <laughs> reading to it with a straight
2: face. Yeah. Um, but so I... I And some people always want to read in what they've been going through recently mm-hmm, or yeah. maybe in their life. And so I, I do know uh, I have some friends and they're they typically do want to read in very specific things that that I think is it's interesting but then if you say well show me where in there that's going on mm. and you know sometimes if they can but yeah I mean I, I steer away from the from from that but one good example when Aaron and I were working on the broadside side you did of my poem Christmas yeah and um <clears throat> you chose you chose an image of the lady in the rocking chair right. at the bottom and you asked me, I don't know what you think about that, but and I, I liked it. It's red, she's red, she's knitting, mm-hmm. and she's sitting in a rocking chair with uh, some knitting project in her lap. And you said, well, I, I, I chose that because I'm certain that that's a female voice. It's a feminine voice. The speaker mm. is a woman. Mm. And when you said that, I thought, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> you know? And, um... But it was interesting to me, so I, of course I went back and found it. I'm going to try to find that poem real quick, just so I can. I was going to say he should read a poem anyway. I was going to you ask want him to read. To this read. One? Sure, to I'll read me. this poem since we're. So this is Christmas. <coughs> Christmas. It's midnight, and huge white rabbits zigzag the snow-packed road. I shock them along with my high beams. In my mind, I've lowered my window and I'm thumping the outside of my door with a ball bat. In my mind, I recklessly cut the cookie with the cheese knife. What do white rabbits eat, I wonder? And do they ever sleep, I wonder? I had a problem and I solved it. How I solved it is none of your business. (laughs) Okay, so. I I love that. I love that problem. You mentioned the female voice, and I thought, wow, this is so interesting to me, because you've got somebody cruising the road at night, and they're not hitting rabbits. They don't even have a ball bat. In the mind, they have a ball Ooh. bat, but there is no ball bat in the poem. So that's one, one example of a reading that would be incorrect. If somebody Ooh. said there's a guy what is the ball bat driving right? what with is a baseball bat, that's weird. There is no baseball bat in this poem. Right. Um, in my mind I've lowered my window the window could be up um, and am thumping the outside of my door with a ball bat so that's not in the poem it's in the speaker's mind but back to the female thing I poured over this thinking where did he get that and I do think I see it Well, do you have any uh... um,
1: the thing that Gave it away for me. It was there was just this kind of concern for the rabbit that I didn't think a typical male would have, yeah. even though she can project into the mind of a guy with a baseball bat, you know, beating right. the door. But then the the last few lines seemed really feminine. Mm-hmm. The the cutting the cookie with the cheese knife, like oh. that's a mistake that a woman would make, not a man. Okay. He's just so, going to use whatever he wants.
2: Yeah, that that <laughs> is what I arrived at. Not the. I had a problem and solved it, um, and not the concern with the rabbit so much. But w- when I went back over this, I was thinking, where did he get that? Because it's it's coming from somewhere. Yeah. And I know that you're, a, you know, good reader, and I think it is the domesticity Ooh. of the 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 cutlery and right. cheese versus cookie mm. and the Christmas title. And, and I really do think it has to do with that kind of like a motherly or... I don't know what it is, but it that's the only place. I don't think it's in the top of the poem, and I don't think it's at the very end, because that's in the, in the, right in the center. In my mind, I recklessly cut the cookie with the cheese knife. So, But, but again, it's fascinating, and that's an example of a reading that I'm not going to argue with. Uh-huh. If they say, oh, this is," I think this is a, a fe- feminine voice... That makes sense, but I had to go back in and look look <laughs> for that, and, went, and then sure. I was able to find it. Where other other times people say I'm seeing this in here, right, and it's too much of a there's a big stretch, but but Aaron, that wasn't that was I think right on. Mm-hmm. One of my
0: favorite um, lines. I I was reading some of your interviews online, and somebody asked you, um, so how do you? Um, Answer the question of what a poem means, and you, <laughs> you said it's like asking someone, "What does this toast mean?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I thought that was perfect. <laughs> or, uh, <clears throat> or the
2: the smell of cigarette smoke is one that I used to use yeah. with, because I taught very briefly at UMass when I was a grad student. Mm. So just and um, somebody would have their smoke breaks in the courtyard outside and it would waft in just come through the classroom every once in a while and it's this really specific and kind of intense vivid olfactory you know yeah. sense that would come that I would but I but to <clears throat> we don't ask that I, to, I said that to the students we don't stop and ask what is toast or cigarette smoke coming in through a room but they add to our to our experiences, <clears throat> definitely. So mm-hmm. I always recommend that people just read the poems without searching for... For meaning. For meaning, because okay. meaning's going to come, come anyway. Yeah. One of my favorite books that I ever... Because,
1: you know, I have to teach poetry, and usually it's like pulling teeth, because students <laughs> hate it. But things changed when I stopped, you know, trying to say, what does this poem mean? Mm-hmm. In the John Chiardi book, how does a poem mean? Ah, Much more
2: fruitful like
1: how is the meaning which was what we were just doing with the christmas poem. Mm -hmm. it's like how is the meaning generated not what does it mean
2: Mm. yeah that's
0: that is i wanted to ask you to read this one too who was the sun
2: who is the sun before the sun was the sun the sun was other things used car salesman (laughs) bible salesman Door-to-door gourd salesman, (laughs) circus employee, early orthodontist, warrior, witch, black hole, wind in the grass, snake in the grass, then car salesman again. That was eons ago. Then the sun became the sun, our great enabler, endurance personified, witness, savior, Silent partner, savage, stoic, cynic. The son partied, was a talker, grew weary, made a comeback, had a heyday, then lost traction, again grew weary, used cars, gourds, Bibles.
0: I love that. Oh God.
2: What does it mean, Earl? (laughs) Well, let me tell you. Pull up a chair.
0: Did Ed's wife have any? Ed's wife was a poet too. Did she have any input into this? The the uh, arranging of this collection?
1: That's a really good question, and I hope you know at some point we might look at her book because she also is coming out with I think it's her first book of poetry. Mm. She's in her eighties, um, called Summer Lightning, and I don't think she had any input into the collection of poems moving on except that toward the end she approached mark and said hey i i wrote this poem about ed right that i wonder if you guys would include and you know i think mark wondered how drumlum would, would view that but when i saw it i was like oh yeah we have to mm. we got to get this in there it's an awesome poem and it i think gives a insight into who ed was from the perspective of His life outside of poetry. Mm. You know, he was pretty venerated as a literary figure, but her little poem just gives a look at the guy Mm. from the perspective of real human, like father. It's about his role as a father. Did you ever see him read?
0: I did. You did. I heard he was amazing in person.
1: Unfortunately, when I saw him, he it was you know maybe the last year of his life. Oh, okay. He was pretty. I talk about it in the introduction here. He was pretty disheveled, but still a towering presence. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was a tall guy, um, and you know he totally captivated the audience. This was at uh, the Florence Hotel, probably around twenty ten. I think it was mm-hmm. maybe twenty two thousand eight. Um. Just, but you can go on YouTube, and see videos of him at his height. You know, Mm -hmm. in the in the eighties when he was reading aloud, and it's amazing. Mm.
0: Seems like a lot of his poems can be appreciated a lot more when they're read out loud. I know when I was at the, when we had the reading and uh, Billings for Butte uh, literature, and several well-known poets read his poems. I was really blown away by those hearing them out loud.
1: That is true, and I think. You know, one difference between these two that we might talk about, or maybe it's a point of similarity, but it's just different. Um, The poems in both cases, I think, when you read them on the page, are different from Mm. when you hear them read aloud. Um, In literature, people who teach Shakespeare always talk about, you know, Shakespeare on the stage versus Shakespeare on the page. They're just two different experiences and i think that's really true of ed's stuff mm. for sure mm-hmm. i think less maybe with Earl. yeah i would agree yeah you know earl's poetry is i think poetry that you could read Just yeah sit it's, and read
0: it's i i read through this this uh collection in one sitting because i was and i don't usually do that with poetry i usually have to take it in small doses but yeah
1: that's also a really good point um You know, before we started recording here, I was saying that I've read more poetry in the last year, probably my entire life before that. Um, And I've gained really new insight and appreciation about what poets actually do. You know, Mm. I previously have always been more into narrative form, but talking to people like Earl and the experience of putting together this Leahy book have just made me realize that, you know, poetry is a pretty amazing form. Anyone can do it. I mean, it's not all great, but the fact that anyone does it at all is pretty uniquely human. I think.
0: Uh huh. And clearly, anybody can do it, but the ones that do it
1: really well are—I mean—they're a different
0: breed of writer. And you know it when you see
1: yeah, it. Right. That's the thing. You know, yeah. a novel—a good novel—might take you two or three reads to appreciate everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. But a really awesome poet, it's just—it's immediate. We've been
0: talking about two wonderful Montana poets. Earl Craig was the uh, former poet laureate of Montana just a few years ago. And his new collection, which is fabulous, is called Woods and Clouds Interchangeable.
1: And the other poet we've been talking about is Uh, Ed Leahy. And his complete works are only two volumes of poetry, really. Um, Birds of a Feather that was put out by Clark Canyon. around 2005, I believe, and Moving On, which were the poems that were collected after he died. Join us again next time on Breakfast
0: in Montana.